share that, and uh, but I think it'll be really helpful for us to uh, to talk, and uh, so y'all can come on in and just sit down with you. Come. Um, Leviticus might not strike you as the world's most exciting book. I think that's probably uh, would be our first uh, thought about it. Maybe a little boring or uh, whatever. But actually, there's some things about Leviticus that I think ought to be really exciting to us. One of the biggest things is, and I read this. I have not confirmed this, but I suspect that it is the case. I read it in the commentary. But Leviticus contains more direct speech by God himself than any other book in the Bible. You know, it may seem boring, but on the other hand, anything we can hear directly from the mouth of God is really exciting. And we've got a lot of that in Leviticus. Um, It's interesting to compare Leviticus with some other books. For example, the previous two. Genesis covers a period of time of about how long? Thousands of years. And Exodus covers a period of time of how long? One month. Not Exodus. Oh. Yeah. You gave the answer away. Yeah. <laughs> Exodus, uh, probably a hundred years or so. And uh, Leviticus, uh, a mighty dose of God's revelation in one month. So we've got a very concentrated period of God revealing himself to his people. And uh, that just ought to be really exciting to us and uh, really helpful to us. There's a lot of comparisons between Exodus and Leviticus. They're sort of companion books. Exodus uh, has us setting up the sanctuary, setting up the tabernacle. And Leviticus shows what we do in the tabernacle, the, the worship, the sacrifice, the priesthood, and that sort of thing. When we look at Leviticus as a whole, I'm going to do a whole lot with this. Um, You may want to say something about it in a moment. But in general, the first half or a little more of the book deals with the way to approach God, um, sacrifices, priesthood, um, how laws of cleanliness that would enable you to come before God. And the last almost half of the book, deals more with the way of living for God. So the first half is how to come before God in worship, and the last half more how to live before God in our life. And in the middle of those two sections, kind of the, the uh, turning point of the book, Leviticus 16, uh, is the, the Day of Atonement, which probably is in some ways the climax of the book of Leviticus. So that's what we're going to be looking at. Anybody want to say uh, anything about the book of Leviticus as a whole? Make any comments or ask questions about that? Okay. Um, As we begin uh, looking at the first few chapters of Leviticus, we are mostly looking at what? Many of you have studied this already and uh, prepared. I appreciate that. So you know the answers uh, to most anything I'm going to to ask. But what, what the first few chapters are about what? Sacrifices, absolutely. And uh, there's a lot of different kinds of sacrifices that we're going to be looking at over the next few minutes, a few or three hours maybe, or whatever. Um, Because no one sacrifice in and of itself, no one kind of sacrifice, really is, is adequate. It requires more than just one to 
to really fully appreciate what Jesus has done and all the different aspects of our relationship with God. So there's a good reason why we have a lot of sacrifices. Come on in. We've got a, several more chairs and so forth. And uh, I, I want you to look at something. Um, look at uh, chapter 1 and verse 1 and see the introduction to that. And notice that there's no similar introduction like that until when? See if you can come up with the next time the Lord. there's actually a narrative statement about the Lord speaking to Moses. Chapter 6. There's one before that. One before, in Leviticus, but one before chapter 4. Yes. And that sort of divides the sacrifices up. There's the sacrifices of the first three chapters. We may have to kind of squeeze in different places. But. All right. Um, the first three sacrifices are in those first three chapters, and they are more voluntary uh, offerings. The bird offering, the grain offering, the peace offering. The offerings or the sacrifices starting in chapter 4 are more specific ones that are required in exact specific situations. That's kind of what we're looking at. So there is a division in the sacrifices between the ones in the first three chapters and the ones in chapters 4 and 5. Um, so would somebody read the first two verses of Leviticus? Then the Lord called to Moses saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When any man of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of animals from the herd or the flock. According to these verses, this is the Lord speaking to Moses. Now the, te- the modern critics say that this was uh, a book written years after Moses and has nothing to do with God's revelation, but if we believe the book itself, this is God speaking to Moses, telling them about sacrifices. And I believe verse 2 is probably the general introductory statement that applies to these whole first seven chapters. He says, When any man of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of animals from the herd or the flock. Now that is telling them what? When they bring a sacrifice, what do they need to do? Where do they find it? Herd of flocks. Yeah. They, they, they bring a sacrifice from the animals that they've been raising. This is not supposed to be an animal that one happened to kill by chance or just ran across. Because, uh, yeah, if you kill a deer, uh, you know, that, that really isn't much of a sacrifice other than perhaps to your car if you kill it that way. Um, but you haven't been raising it. You haven't been feeding it. It's not your animal. But the idea was that they were actually supposed to select one of the animals that they, is theirs, that they've been raising, and give it to God. That's more costly. God asks us not to do something that's just easy. Go out here and grab an animal somewhere and uh, give it. But, but take one from the flock or the herd. Comments or questions on the first two verses? One thing that really shows is that in the Old Testament, God really expected you to have an attitude of servitude because... Otherwise, when you look at like people today, they try and find a loophole. But God made sure there was, there was no loophole when he had Moses write this down. Absolutely. 
God wants us to make sacrifices. That's the whole idea of sacrifices. <laughs> and uh, sometimes we think about making sacrifice without it costing us anything, and that really contradicts the meaning of the term when it's all said and done. So uh, we need, definitely need to think about the idea of, of sacrificing when, when that happens. Other comments or thoughts on those first two verses? John? So this tent of meeting, is, is that what I think of as the tabernacle then? I think so. But I'm open to other interpretations. Do I get agreement or disagreement on that? My Bible says tabernacle. Okay. Now, that, if it was, if, if, I don't know, where does Leviticus fall chronologically? Right after? That's the last thing we end with in Exodus. Is setting up that tent of meat and God filling it, correct? Yeah. So that would also, you know, the, these books sort of flow from one into the other. I mean, you could really almost join these together. So that would probably also be an indication, since the Lord came into the tabernacle in the end of Exodus, that that's the place from which now he calls out to Moses. Good point, Michael. Other thoughts on that? Good question. Other thoughts on these first two verses? All right, one of the things I'm going to want us to do, I want us to start... um, seeing how to divide up this book for ourselves. And that may mean at times we're going to do some longer readings, and I'm going to ask you to try to see how you think we should paragraph this. Um, But starting in verse 3, we have the first type of offering, the burnt offering. And uh, I'd like for someone to read 3 to 17, but as we do that, I'd like for you to think about some things. I'd like for you to think about the procedure of offering the sacrifice. I'd like for you to think about exactly what is done. Try to visualize this. Who's doing what in the sacrificial stuff? I'd also like for you to think about how you would paragraph this off. What are the natural divisions here? So would somebody read 3 to 17? If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer it, and bail without defect. Slay the young bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons the priest shall offer up the blood, and sprinkle the blood around the altar that is at the doorway of the tent of meeting. He shall then skin the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. The son of Aaron the priest shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. Then Aaron's sons the priest shall arrange the pieces, the head and the suet over the wood which is on the fire that is on the altar. His entrails, however, and his legs he shall wash with water, and the priest shall offer up and smoke all of it on the altar for a burnt offering and offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. And if his offering is from the flock of the sheep or of the goats, for a burnt offering, he shall offer it a male without defect. He shall slay it on the side of the altar northward before the Lord. And Aaron's sons of the priest shall sprinkle his blood around the altar. He shall then cut it into its pieces with its head and suet, and the priest shall arrange them on the wood which is on the fire that is on the altar. The entrails, however, and the legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall offer all of it, and offer it up in smoke on the altar. But if his offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, and he shall bring his offering from the turtle doves or from young pigeons, the priest shall bring it to the altar and wring off its head, and offer it up in smoke on the altar, and his blood is to be drained down on the side of the altar. He shall also take away its crop with his feathers, and cast it beside the altar eastward to the place of the ashes. And he shall tear it by his wings, but shall not sever it. And the priest shall offer it up in smoke on the altar. 
on the wood which is on the fire. It is a burnt offering, an offering of that fire, the soothing of the The burnt offering was perhaps the most <laughs> essential offering of the tabernacle. It was made every morning and evening by the Israelites. And as you look at this burnt offering, I ask you to consider how you would paragraph this. What are your natural divisions in this text? Three to nine, why? It talks about the cattle. Yes, it talks about bringing a burnt offering from the herd. And then what in 10 to uh, 13? The flocks. From the flock, so that would be what? Sheep. Sheep or goat. And then in 14 to 17, what do you have? Bird. Birds. Now, what's the rationale behind this order? Starting with the cattle, then moving to the sheep and goats, then moving to the birds. Yes, it seems to me like we're starting with the most valuable down to the least valuable. We're going to learn a little later on that in part the Lord allowed some diversity to accommodate people of different means, different uh, financial situations. Um, now he says when you bring an offering from the herd, by the way, do you notice which one he gives the most attention to? The, the one from the herd. I may have a different answer than you do on this. Why do you think that is? Why does he, you know, there's a lot more taken up in the, the offering from the herd in 3 through 9 than for the other two offerings. Why do you think that would be? Bigger sacrifice. That would be one possibility. Is it just because it's a bigger or more costly sacrifice? Is there another possibility? Maybe it's a pattern, so whatever you do there is going to follow with the others. That's what I think, is that he actually, in the first one, he lays down lots and lots of guidelines that many of them are applicable for the other two kinds of uh, animals as well. So I think that may be the case. Um, but he says, in verse 3, what are the qualifications that he actually gives on the animal? Male, that is, without defect. Yes. Why a male without defect? Because if it has an illness, it's not really going to be much of a sacrifice to you. Absolutely. He does not want cut-rate gifts. You know, as if God wasn't worth anything better than a diseased or deformed or in some way defective animal. If you saw a, a, a worshiper that brings some runny, scrawny, sickly animal, what could you tell about them? Their heart's not in it. Yeah. They're not really all that eager to do it. Their heart's not in it. Uh, they're sort of indifferent. The Absolutely. That's a good, <laughs> good point. The forefathers of Ananias and Fire. Come on down. And... Uh, that's exactly right. And, uh, you know, God's worth more than, than that. You know, God deserves the very best we've got to offer. Now, I also want you to think about how this, how this actually takes place. So, what's the first thing that happens in this whole procedure? Who acts first? The offerer, and what does he have to do first? Even before that. 
to bring it to. All right. He has to pick out the animal and he has to bring it up to the doorway of the tent of meeting, of the tabernacle. Um, and so he's actually taking the animal and presenting it. I, I don't know. That was probably somewhat of a procedure. Um, uh, you know, I, I've never worked with those kinds of animals, a little bit with chickens, but that's about it. But, uh, you know, to take a, a, a bull or to take a, a ram or, or whatever, um, even the birds may be a little less difficult, but, but you've got to take them up there. And uh, then the next thing, when they take them up there, is he shall, in verse 4, lay his hand on the head of the bird offering. This is a, a kind of a, a formal procedure, and the verb actually indicates to, like, press on it. So he presses his hand down on the animal that he's offering so that it can be accepted for him to make atonement on his behalf, in verse 4. This is the sacrifice of the worshiper. And he is identifying, identifying himself um, as, as the owner, and maybe almost the idea that the animal will die in his place. Now, the idea of atonement, what does that mean? We don't use that word very much. Propitiation. To cover, to rub out. Is it? Propitiation. Propitiation. What is a propitiation? Satisfaction. Satisfaction. It's the whole idea of a sacrifice. The idea of the necessity of sin demanding punishment. And uh, if, if, if sin were not um, atoned for, if sin were not covered by a sacrifice, what would we have to face? God's wrath. That's exactly right. So a sacrifice of atonement executes the wrath of God against that animal so that the, the offerer is spared. The body and the blood of the animal were given up in behalf of, of the one who, who made the offering. So he puts his hand on the, the head of the burnt offering, and uh, then what's the next step? Who does what next? The offerer kills it. The offerer kills it. This must have been a very moving occasion, and one you would not forget quickly. This is not a spectator religion. The offerer is bringing the animal... He's putting his hand on it, and then he kills it. I wonder how he killed it. I would think so. Probably not with a gun, you know, but he would, he would slit its throat. And, uh, you know, he, he's, he's not going to forget that. It's, 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 it's a very, he's very uh, involved in, in the ritual. And, of course, when you cut the throat, what comes out? Blood. The blood. Now, who does what with the blood? Yes, they offer up the blood and sprinkle it around on the altar. Which altar? The burnt offering altar. Where was that all altar? In the courtyard. It was made of what metal? Bronze. Bronze. So 
the blood of the burnt offering is sprinkled there at, at the altar, the, the sacrifice altar, at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Then who does what next? The offerer takes it and cuts it up. And skins it and cuts it up. Yeah. I mean, some of you guys have got deer or whatever, and you know something about that. But, but he actually, I guess with the knife and so forth, he skins the animal, and he, and he chops it up into pieces, uh, dismembers it with his own hands. That, again, I think one of the most impressive things to me about these sacrifices is how involved the worshiper was with it. Uh, he's, he's doing all of this himself. This is not, you know, the priest had a role, but he's the one that's actually killing, skinning, and cutting up the animal. And then what do the priests do? They, they arrange the wood on the fire. They put, start the fire, put the wood on the fire, and then they actually take the pieces of this animal and they put it on the fire. Um... However, there was a part, there were parts of the animal that needed to be washed. What parts? Yes. Who washed those parts? The offerer. The offerer. You know, basically everything that could be done by the offerer was. The things that could not be done by the offerer are the things that are actually involved with the blood and the altar itself. But everything that involves the, the handling of the animal, short of, of, of presenting him on the altar, the worshiper himself did. And then the priest burns that animal up as a burnt offering. It's all there, and God accepts this offering. In fact, to God, what does this offering, what is this offering like? So what does that tell you? He's, He's very pleased with this. It's comforting to know that we can find, there's a way to find acceptance with God. And, and not just acceptance, but even we, this brought God pleasure. It smelled good to him. Not because he liked the odor per se, but because it's, it showed the sacrifice of the man before God. And he actually you know, gave himself up in this way. He he sacrificed himself. Alright, do you have questions or comments? In verse 3, um, could the offerer be turned down by the Lord or the priest? Either one? Well, what about that? Could he, have, could he bring the offering and the priest say no? I suppose maybe in, a, in an instance if he thought that he was going to bring, if the priest would bring judgment on himself for taking part in that, he might. You know, should the priest... Like Nadab and Abihu, how they offered a strange fire, they brought God's judgment upon themselves for doing things wrong. Under what circumstances would the priest perhaps, uh, should at least, have rejected the sacrifice? Wrong kind of animal. Wrong kind of animal? Look at Malachi. I mean, with those priests... When they were accepting the sickly sacrifices, God got mad at them. Um, I think that that would apply here as well. I agree. Also, also, if the priest did something that the offerer was supposed to do, then that could bring judgment upon both the 
priest and the offerer, because the offerer shouldn't have let the priest do that, which he was supposed to do. Okay. But we're just thinking in terms of, like, accepting the animal. It seems to me like if the animal didn't measure up to the standard, the priest should have rejected that. I think Malachi 1 is a good passage along that line. Uh, that does seem to be a passage where God is displeased with the priest for accepting those animals. And uh, so perhaps there would be a case in which the priest would say, this animal is not adequate. This is not the right, uh, right sacrifice, or it's, uh, it has a defect. Good question. So is the Lord, is the priest making that judgment in verse 3, or is it the Lord that will accept it? It says that he may be accepted before the Lord. I don't know if that in itself is saying anything about the judgment involved. It may just say, be saying that he brings this to find acceptance before God. I'm not sure that that's saying that he brings it so that somebody will accept it, but it, I think it is true that the priest should have uh, rejected the sacrifice if it wasn't uh, appropriate. Do we have a second? anything that tells us how they went about choosing Drew Brock for the burnt offering, how they chose the individuals in morning or evening? Well... I think, I don't know, on the morning and evening sacrifice, that was a sacrifice offered just for the congregation, the whole. Uh, the, the, I don't know who provided that. That's not my question. I think it came out of the flocks that were kept at the temple. Okay. Right. I don't know if that's right. And the question comes back to the he, then, in regards to that person bringing that. I think the, this, I think we're looking right here at just an individual bringing a burnt offering. That besides the ritual morning and evening offering and other specific burnt offerings that were to be offered at certain feast days, this also was an individual sacrifice that somebody could bring an animal and offer it as a burnt sacrifice for themselves. In certain specific situations and also voluntarily. We're in more general here, and this is in general the procedure for offering a... I think so. And I think envisioning an individual bringing it and offering it. Similar procedure if it's like for a festival or whatever, but I think here we're envisioning a worshiper actually bringing it for the atonement for his own sins. Now, Gary, I, I researched this sometime back, and I don't recall from my from notes what I actually learned, but um, when, when, they're, when they're required to uh, pay a ransom at various times under this old law, weren't some of those some of those monies that were collected, weren't they for the use to do the work of the, of the tabernacle? Maybe so. I'm not sure. Like in the guilt offering and so forth, when money was collected, where did that go? I don't know. I don't have an answer to that. Somebody. I was trying to remember. That, that may be the case. I, I couldn't remember. Good question. <laughs> um, what is the... Or be a man or woman? I assume so. But I... I don't know that I have a definite answer on that. Could a woman offer a sacrifice? Well, we know that uh, Mary uh, had to, you know, for purification purposes. You had those that were yeah. required mm -hmm. by a woman, so. So as verse 2, gender specific, the numerical standard says, when any man of you. I assume that's meaning any person of you. Okay. Also, the, since the offerer had to make the sacrifice, if as we know, people sin. If a woman had sinned, she would have to uh, go and 
sacrifice the animal. Exactly. There would be some like sin offerings and, and trespass offerings that if a woman was involved, it seems to me like in that situation she would need to offer the sacrifice as well. This sacrifice, what did it symbolize, this burnt offering? What did it really mean? You mean ultimately? Well, ultimately or almost ultimately. <laughs> Semi-ultimately. Well, what, what, what's dis, what's distinctive about this one? What's what's this really saying? Since it's all burned up, it has to be the whole person. I think so. It seems to me like this is sort of the self-surrender. This is this is giving it all to God. This offering, none of it was eaten by priests. None of it was eaten by the worshippers. It was all given to God. And so it's the idea of just the dedication of the animal or of the person to God. Reminds you of Romans twelve giving our bodies a living sacrifice, giving ourselves to the Lord. So what would have been an appropriate circumstance to offer a offering? Well, there were a number of circumstances we'll see through the book where there were specific you know, needs for a burnt offering. But it, I think this was also something that could be brought by an offerer who wanted to give the animal to the Lord, that it could be offered on a voluntary basis, but we'll see a number of specific times when God will say, and offer a burnt offering. Uh, isn't it almost sort of like a, uh, sort of, this is a pattern that will be used in several other offerings. Exactly. What we're, it's almost like what we're doing in this book is to start out with the, the procedure. You know, here's kind of the, I don't know what a good word for this would be. But this is kind of the manual for offering sacrifices. Then as we get on later on in the book, and in other books, we'll see different situations and occasions that call for those sacrifices. And if you want to know how to offer them, you go back here and you find out how to do it. It seems to me like it's sort of that idea. And in fact, he, he has... All, he, he has back in, in, in the chapters we have read in Exodus... Uh, he has encouraged the consecration of the priests and talked about that uh, in, in the, uh, I forget just exactly which chapters. It seems to me like maybe chapter 28 is one of them. Um, but, and it would be very reasonable perhaps to, for him to have started Leviticus. He's got the tabernacle set up. Let's consecrate the priests. And that is the first thing that's going to happen after we get through this manual on the sacrifices. But it perhaps would not have made a lot of sense have gone through the consecration of the priests when we don't even know what those sacrifices they're offering mean and how to offer them and all of that. So he starts out with the procedures for the sacrifice before we start in chapter 8 using them for various things starting with the priestly consecration and then other things as we go on through. Putting the priest through orientation. Yes. Sorry. No problem. Come on in. Make yourself a note. Sometimes we talk about like establishing a protocol. And that's maybe kind of like what he's doing. Good. Yes. Other thoughts? Questions? Good discussion. Kelly. It's really goofy, but when you think about all the offerings that were offered on that altar through the years, I mean, surely that bronze would have under normal circumstances deteriorated. I mean, was there some miraculous, you know, some God, God preserving this thing? I have no clue on that one. <laughs> Remedy procedures for rebronzing the altar. 
Well, you, you think about that, I've thought about something on a similar term as well. You think about how messy a person gets with handling blood and the holiness of the, the priest's clothes and how important those were. I, I almost can't envision the priest doing this day in and day out without getting her clothes awfully filthy. You know, throughout time, things like blood would have gotten even splattered on various parts of in, the inside of the tabernacle on the, on the and things like that. You know, I would assume it eventually <laughs> that would that would get in pretty bad shape. I don't know if they ever were allowed to replace that or not. Yeah. And out in the you know out in the wilderness where it's dirty, wind blowing and everything like that, it's hard to know. Yeah, I don't have a good answer to some of those things. I suppose they did whatever was necessary unless there was some sort of miraculous, uh, you know, procedures. Kyle, do you have any? No, I mean, I'm just assuming they did, you know, there was regular maintenance. Yeah, some kind of regular maintenance at the tabernacle, perhaps. So, Bruce? So, what was the purpose of bringing this? Was, was there always necessarily sin they were trying to be atoned for, or was was there an offering sometimes just uh, uh, verse 2 uh, let's see uh, that he may be accepted before the Lord was there different reasons for this yes there were there were a lot of different reasons and situations that called for a burnt offering not all of them involved sin um, still it was an atonement offering and uh, there's surely always a need to have, atone, have our sins atoned for. But I don't think, this is not a, an offering that every single time it's commanded is because of some specific sin. There were lots of times it was commanded, even like I say, for the congregation as a whole, even during certain feast days, just as a matter of course. And then situations that individuals were in, but certainly not always a sinful situation. We'll see a lot of that starting, say, in chapter uh, uh, 12 or so, uh, different specific situations that call for these offerings. It's kind of hard to, to get all that into focus. I mean, the different offerings nece weren't necessarily for different things, but a different way of going about offering something or offering something different. Yeah. Not necessarily for a different reason. There's some symbolism, I think, behind what these are. I think this bird offering is more the symbolism of the surrender of oneself to God, the giving of the whole thing to the Lord. And I think we'll see some symbolism in some of the others. Uh, and he does often, we'll, we'll look at this as we go on, when he does ask for specific offerings, they're very often in the same order. And I think we will be able to stop and think about why this order most of the time, you know, between the various kinds of offerings. And I think there's some rationale to that. Uh, but there's certainly some overlapping in this. And uh, we're really just trying to kind of look at different angles of the sacrifices. Ben? You know, as we read over this, it's easy sometimes to miss, I guess, the mundane details of what this was involved in, to skin the animal, to, to butcher it, to handle its entrails, to wash it. Those are nasty, unpleasant things. I mean, we can just kind of read over them, but, you know, when we think of the idea of actually bringing a sacrifice, it was a sacrifice of, of their livelihood, you know, of, of their animal, and it was a cost to them, but also just the act of doing it involves a lot of little things that are not pleasant to do. And when we think of our sacrifices today, like for instance, God calls us to be pure, to not be immoral. And we think, well, you know, we can't commit fornication or something like that. And that's true, that's part of it. That's going to be a cost to us to live a pure life, but also there are, there are mundane aspects, that little things that we're supposed to do just to keep our minds focused on God, but sometimes we can skip because we're unpleasant. We don't necessarily 
much a part of it as the larger idea of giving up something. Good point, yeah. And, and it's interesting that in these sacrifices, and pretty much in everything in Leviticus, God is pretty detailed. <laughs> you know, he's got procedure. You know, it's this, 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 this. And God's a pretty detailed God. He has, he has a will. He's got, he's got things that he wants it done his way. And uh, it's good for us to remember that in general. Yeah, we studied uh, Genesis 19 um, with Lot's wife and why she was turned to salt. And really, I mean, God said, don't look back. However dumb that may have seemed, he said, don't do it. And here in Leviticus, we see a whole bunch of things, a whole bunch of laws that, you know, you have to do it this way. Why they had to, you know, put their hand on top of the head and all of that. Why Why that was necessary? Well, it's because the Lord said so. The Lord said, you have to do it this way, and the, you can't ask questions now. Um, they have to do it as the Lord says, and that's the end of the matter. Yeah, it would be easy to say, well, you know, maybe it doesn't make too much difference about this or that. We'll kind of, you know, streamline this and do it our way or whatever. But um, what the Lord says, do it this way, uh, we'll find out later that's by far the way to do it. <laughs> when we don't, there are some consequences. <laughs> Other thoughts and comments through verse 9? It's the same deal with today. We see it that God had a certain specific way to do things back then, even though it's not quite as maybe hard for us to do it today, there's still the same expectations there. Because you see people, when we tell them to be baptized, it's like, well, what's soaking in water going to do to save you? I mean, because God told you that's how you're going to do it. We ought to have the same reverence for God and the same desire to follow His will exactly as He stated. He's the same God. We need that kind of fear for Him and that kind of desire to please Him. And that kind of willingness to listen to each <coughs> detail that he gives us. In our Bible study class, we're talking about authority. And one of my friends made a good point. He said that the reason we have to listen to the mundane things is because God has the ultimate authority right to say what you have to do in a certain order. And one of the things, one of the uh, things he used was Uzzah. Uzzah was killed and struck dead because he touched the ark. And God told him not to do it. He has the authority to, to, to proclaim justice. And that's his authority. And if we don't do it exactly as he says it, we will be punished. Good point. Good, good illustrations. John? It's great, too, that has revealed to us and told us how we can please him. We don't have to wonder. We don't have to, you know, imagine... If God didn't speak to man, then that's where we would be. We would be trying to guess, and but we're not in that predicament, and that's kind of that, that's, a, that's a good way of looking at that too. Absolutely, we should consider this revelation to be a blessing. It really is, and uh, that is helpful. Studying from we we saw that um, from at least when they built the temple, I don't know if it was like this with the tabernacle or not, but. To wash the animals, they even had to go around to the side of the temple. That that's where those basins were for them to wash those out. So it's it's not like they had uh, the convenience of uh, washing the dishes off in the dishwasher and putting them, wash them in, off in the sink and putting them right there in the dishwasher. They had to carry the guts of these animals, you know, <laughs> just to wash them off and bring them back because the the altar was even in the front, and so they had to go over there and they had to bring them back and. It wasn't as easy as 
even with those little things. Good point, Ryan. Oh, Kelly, Ryan. Kelly, go ahead. Do you have a comment on Michael? Yes. Okay. Well, not on Michael. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, uh, you know, that's a good point because think about what we are even doing here doing a public assembly. It's, it's so easy to just become mechanical and all that. And this had to be just as the, the same potential, the same possibility for hypocrisy or just shallowness in what they were doing. And they could probably do that with their eyes closed. And the priests, particularly, uh, and I just think they've got, they had to be very careful to do what they were doing for God. And whether it's our work, or our function at home, or here, do we need to connect all that with God and that we're doing it for Him? Good point. Now, right. I actually had a question. We were saying, it says that the priest should arrange the pieces, the head, and the suet over the wood which is on the fire. Um, what's the suet? Thank you. Other comments or questions through verse 9? It's a good thing you all studied this. That's a big help. Great. I've always thought this about the detail of sacrifice. How withdrawn we are nowadays from all meat in general, except for those. I mean, I'm sure there are those here who hunt. I, I could do some of these things. But it seems like a real deterrent for women. <laughs> I mean, I can't picture any female in here doing this. I, I know my wife doesn't want anything. Even, even so much as grabbing a bird and wringing its neck on. Most people don't want to do that. You know, some of us men who hunt, no big deal with This is bloody. It is detailed. It is messy, like what we've said. Yeah, I mean, there's several parts of this that would be difficult. Obviously, the, the you know, it's not exactly the most pleasant thing to do. And what about if you'd been raising that animal? You know, that's, you know, even for men, I think that might be difficult. Men. When you think about the idea of this becoming mechanical, it probably would have been a great challenge for the priest to do this every day. When you think about the person who brings the offering, and they're giving up something like that, you know, they would have felt that every time they gave up, unless they're just more than above. You think about us today, we are the priest, and we are the ones who bring the offering. And it's possible, especially in America where we're wealthy in so many ways, we can bring offerings that don't really cost us. But as long as we make sure we're bringing offerings that are sacrifices on our part, that aren't just, you know, mechanical actions, they're things we can feel when we give away, when we give them up to God, then we never run the risk of becoming drones on worship, which is too low. Good point. Mm-hmm. Other thoughts, comments, questions? Um, assume the once the fire got started, they didn't put it out and restart it for every sacrifice. Okay. Yeah, there's again a that's something that passage uh, where in uh, it's uh, chapter six, I think. Uh, look at six thirteen, six twelve and thirteen. They weren't supposed to let the fire go out. Anything else through verse nine? Good discussion, good comments, and good variety of people offering that. I appreciate that. Um, and so, you look at 10 to 13, this follows a similar procedure. He does not have to repeat every detail. He assumes we have read the first paragraph. So he says if, if his offering is from the flock of the sheep or of the goats, for a burnt offering, he shall a male without defect. He shall slay it on the side of the altar, northward before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall sprinkle its blood around on the altar. He shall 
Then cut it into pieces with its head and its suet, and the priest shall arrange them on the wood, which is on the fire that is on the altar. The entrails, however, and the legs he shall wash with water, and the priest shall offer all of it, and offer it up in smoke on the altar. It's a burnt offering, an offering by fire, for soothing aroma to the Lord. So that kind of summarizes the details that we got in 2 to 9. In this case, with the animal from the flock, either sheep or goat. So the blood, it wasn't actually burned. No, the blood wasn't burned. It was just sprinkled around the altar. So, ultimately, we would have had a red altar. There was a ton of blood. Ultimately, we'd have had a red altar. Unless it got washed off. Yeah. I have no no information on uh, you know uh, procedures for uh, cleaning <laughs> all this. Dixon. Well, there, were, there were days where they offered thousands of animals, and you think about those situations. Literally, they had to have a manner which we're just not. We're not it's not spoken of to us how they do that. They literally have a way of removing even that that blood at that time. It's, it is going to be. It wouldn't be a place that smelled very well. Probably not. Yeah, and, it, and you would assume it would even build up the height of it after a while. Absolutely. Yeah, so it had to have some manner in which, you know, in the non-sacrificing time period that they done something, especially those days when the hundreds of thousands of animals were sacrificed. And have a mate or something. It's a good thing they were up on the field and had a big family. Yeah. Yeah, I think the smell around here would not have been all that, I mean, you know, the, the meat itself, Cooking might have smelled good, but there's a lot of other stuff that wouldn't have shaped it. They, in verse, where, they say, where it says they washed the insulin in their legs, is that to get rid of the blood? Is that what they did? I think to also clean them from, you know, uh, their own waste and so forth. Holy offering. Right. So it needs to be cleansed. Mike? Yeah. Oh, I found this interesting. You know, if you, if you look at the way the tabernacles are set up, it says here that it's it alludes to this here in, in verse 11 where it's talking about the, I think it was verse 11 where it was talking about um, going on the north or on the north side to, to do these things. Yes. If you pay attention to how the, the tabernacle was always to be set up, the opening to the tabernacle was always facing toward the east, which is where the sun rises and that's the beginning of new life and things like that. I always like that symbolism. Yes, that's exactly right. Other comments and thoughts through 13? So, if it's facing east, like if you're facing the altar, what side do you put the right the, hand? Oh. Like, what side do you do whatever you do? If you're facing the opening, the what right side hand do you side kill it on? North, correct? Right. Okay, so like if you face to go to the right. Yeah, you would, you would walk in and immediately you would see the, uh, the burnt, burnt altar, or the altar of burnt offering, and then right after that, the laver, and then you get to the, the tabernacle. Other comments and questions through 13? When you think about the priests, you think that there is also a matter of servitude there because if you have to imagine how many that they have to gather up the blood and everything, after sacrificing all those animals, you think that they smell pretty bad. Because, I mean, they didn't have what we had now. We'd bring some air freshener in a few minutes, so it would be gone. I mean, they, did, they had to bear that all day while they were... While people were coming in with the sacrifices, it was a lot of work, Dixon. 
a question, and I just we talked about the women doing the sacrificing, but you had the you had the, the courts broken apart into that, and they had the uh, uh, court for the women, and then were they allowed to go that far into this area? I wasn't sure if they were. Well, look at uh, twelve six. When the days of her purification are completed for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring it to the priest at the doorway of the tent of meeting, a one-year-old lamb for burnt offering, and so forth. Now, here's what I think about that. You all can correct me. I this is uh, it's really good. You all are very sympathetic, so you all will straighten me out and uh, you know answer the questions. And uh, you've been doing that in the temple. But my thinking is that that court of the women was a later development and not something in the original tabernacle. And later on, even in the Old Testament, the priests did the killing of the animals. Uh, that, was, that was later done, at least in the return. Don't ask me where, but somebody want to confirm that or deny it? That's right. Isn't it? So. Wasn't, wasn't that one of the... I think that was only in Herod's temple. That, that, that they had the yeah, court of the like women yeah, and the Gentiles. Like the Pharisees with all of those to keep things clean. Or put another court in to keep women out. Okay, that may very well be the because case. Because there's the court, and then there was the women's court, and then there was the Gentiles' court. So, yeah, I believe that was only in Herod's temple. That's probably right. I don't know if anybody else can confirm that. Sounds good to me. Yeah. Nobody, nobody argues with John. We'll, we'll take yeah, it for now. Yeah, there wasn't. There was only one court in the temple when Solomon built it. Right. Uh, also here in, in chapter 12 and 6 and 7 she brings it but he offers it to priests that is so is that all she does is bring it that would make it a little easier for <laughs> speaking of those kinds of things well is that how that works I don't know that that's the case I mean I assume if she brings the lamb she does her part and he does his part well in verse 7 it says that he shall offer for the Lord which is what the priest always did. The priest would always offer it before the Lord and make atonement. So I'm not sure this is language any different. I may be wrong about that, but it strikes me that this would fit the language of what we've just been reading. So I, I don't know. Somebody want to offer a more definitive statement? I, I don't think this necessarily indicates that she wouldn't have killed it. She brought it. She laid her hand on it. She killed it. She skinned it. He offered it. Yeah. That's the way that I think. That might take, but somebody may know something that refutes that. Okay. Other thoughts through 13. <clears throat> Good discussion. Now in 14 to 17, we've got, if his offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, then he shall bring his offering from the turtle doves or from young pigeons. Now, we know that uh, these would be less... And God is allowing anyone, regardless of their financial position, to be able to present offerings before God. God is such a merciful God in that. Just as today, no degree of spiritual poverty should exclude one from participating fully in Christ's sacrifice. Perhaps there's an analogy there. But because of it being birds, the procedure is a bit different. In verse 15, the priest shall bring it to the altar and wring off its head and offer it up in smoke on the altar and his blood is to be drained out on the side of the altar. So, um, when it's, when it's a, a, a bird, who does the killing? 
Yes. Wonder why that was the case. There wasn't enough blood to catch. I think that may very well be the case. You know, if you got a bird, you know, a pigeon or a turtle dove, may need to bring its neck right there at the altar to let the, the blood be drained there. There won't be very much blood associated with that. And uh, comments and questions about that and about uh, the offering of the birds here. I have a question. Yes. Um, let's say a rich man who had birds and flocks. I'm not sure if I can answer that. However, in chapter 5, um, with these uh, offerings, he emphasized, but if he cannot afford a lamb, but if his means are insufficient for the birds and so forth. So I would assume that knows and that he wants it to be for those who, who, who need to have that special allowance. Mike, you I think in that same passage you brought out just a moment ago about the woman being purified yes. and Leviticus 12, Good point. talking about how her being purified down in verse 8, it says, and if she's not able to bring a lamb, then she may bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons, as one is a burnt offering and the other is a sin offering. Uh, along those same lines, it, it's not whatever she wants to bring, but if she's not able to bring one, it's the opportunity to bring something of less value. Good passage, and that's helpful. Yeah. I, as far as I know, this was not you know, offers discretion. This is uh, an allowance for uh, people of, of more modest means to be able to bring an offering. Really, though, again, what we're looking at right here is the, just the manual of how to do it. What they can bring in different situations will be covered later. Yeah. Of course, we know in Galatians, all the Old Testament is kind of a foreshadowing of things to come. And today, now we have a, a commandment to give offerings in another sense, and we give as one purposes in his own heart. And so just like in, in the Old Testament, God would have known whether or not they're financially able to provide the proper types of sacrifice. Today, he knows the same of us as well. That's a good point. I mean, you're not going to fool the Lord, Kelly. But they had the same sort of we had to decide what will really be a sacrificial offering. And I'm sure there were people who gave a turtle dove who God would have preferred to see them give sheep or whatever. But they tried to. Everybody's always looking for a discount. <laughs> but the Lord is not mocked. You see, I think you see what God wants is probably in that story with when, when Nathan comes to David, that that lamb that the guy is raising, that if he was to offer that lamb, that is a sacrifice. The other guy to go get the you know, steal somebody's lamb and use that, and that's not a sacrifice. I wonder about people like that, that they have one um, or they have two, and you know, there goes half their herd and one, <laughs> one sacrifice. Almost herds it right there, doesn't it? You can, you can tell that would definitely be a sacrifice, and how much, I mean, I don't know that that would be the extreme that they'd go to, but would we do that? Um, like the woman with the two mites giving all that. When we see these sacrifices actually required and applied later on, don't forget this is expensive. You know, they are losing uh, potential income by burning this burnt offering on the altar and not getting to sell it, not getting to eat it. Um, this is a sacrifice. 
And God required a lot of sacrifices. Now, he provided for them. And, uh, it, but, but, you know, from a short-term, non-spiritual view, this could have been very difficult. You should have really humbled them and, and showed them that all they have is God's. Yes. He, he deserves it anyway. He has the right to recall any animal he wants to. There he is. Good point. Ben. From the widow and her two mites she gave, we see the attitude God wanted for sacrifice, no matter what specific ways he wanted it done. And, you know, as they're very ritualized at this point in God's law, it's very easy to find, find ways to try and circumvent that. But if you have that same attitude that the widow had of doing everything to God, trusting him, even though you might be losing your physical needs, trusting the spiritual needs to sustain you, then you wouldn't take advantage of these things, even though it's much more rigid than what we might have today. I have a question as well. In verse 17, we talked about awkwardness. He says, you're taken to tear it by its wings, but not separate it. Mm -hmm. Do you have any thoughts on that? Or that? No, I don't, I don't have a thought on that. Who does? Is that um, breaking the rib cage open, like the breastbone stuff, so that it burns more? Uh, that idea that he takes it and he pulls it apart, but it doesn't break the back or anything. So it's still together, it's still a bird, but it's open up. Okay. Sounds good to me. Sounds good to me. Shane? I have a question. Okay. Uh, the, one, the people that perform up to, uh, that Oscar the Turtle does, were they looked down upon by others that, or was that, did they consider that not as? Uh, as a cow or a sheep? I don't recall any passages that would say that. We know that's what Mary offered for her purification, but I don't know if, uh, it wouldn't shock me if there were times when that happened, but I don't believe anything in the Bible that would say one way or the other. It goes back to like the priest, how they looked upon the woman that gave this little bit and they gave this, but he says that since she gave it all and is trusting me, then she has done better than they. Certainly, you know, he sees the sacrifice involved, not the absolute value. I think of how the poor were provided for, those that were down the were provided for, and even going through the fields and picking up stuff. They were supposed to help those people, and I don't ever see that frowned upon. It's a provision God made, and I kind of looked, when he asked that, I thought of that same principle. Definitely, the law said a lot to favor the poor, to care for the poor. So if they did do that, they were clearly out of the spirit of the law. Good point. And don't you know there were priests who, because they were far from God, well, they sure like to see Mr. Fat Jack coming with his big bull that he could share in. I mean, it enriched the priests. Yes, probably so, though not in this offering if they did it the right way. The priests got nothing out of this one. But yeah, and the others, you would assume... They liked uh, the bigger the animal, the better, you know. Especially if it was, you know, pasture fed or whatever. <laughs> um, back, to verse, back to verse two is the flock. We can think of a flock of birds today too. What is that? Just for the sheep, or why is there an extra section for birds? Or I think the birds are probably an extra section. Normally, you'd bring it from the flock or the herd. The birds more a an exception for the poor. So you don't. We don't see. Okay, there we go. We don't see. You can't afford a bull. You bring something from the flock. If you can't afford the flock, you bring something from that. But you have the beginning choices to bring from the herd or the flock, and they're kind of. Equal. I think so. Although verse two, I think, is just sort of a general statement to apply to all these sacrifices. Then he starts talking about the specific procedures for each kind, and then later he'll tell us 
the specific instances in which we need to offer various specific things. Other comments and thoughts on the first chapter? When you were talking about the cattle and things, you said that they would own them, that, like, that would be giving something from your herd or flock. Would they also raise birds? I don't know so much about that. Maybe not. That might be one they'd go out and, you know, well, take a net. So maybe that would be one of the reasons why that would be less costly. Yes, I think so, besides the fact that probably wouldn't maintenance. But yeah, I, I don't necessarily assume they were raising the birds. That's, that'd be my feeling. Somebody got I think sometimes during the captivity, though, we see when we talk about the, the you know, the, how, how desperate they were in as far food, there at least I think there's some interpretation, at least my interpretation was, they, they kept those birds for eating as well. Uh, that's, they, they at least did eat birds in some of those cases, and some things worse than that. And, so. they, and they certainly had that present in the, in, in the wandering years of, of eating birds as well. I, I yeah. don't think they had, that's just my opinion, but I would think that they, they did partake of that in some fashion. Okay, that's an interesting thought, that they perhaps had birds that they would raise. Somebody want to give any other perspectives on that? I'm not sure about that. That's interesting. Kelly? This is just You wonder back, like in Matthew 21, 12, they were selling doves. That's one of the things that Jesus ever turned. I wonder if, in fact, they weren't selling doves because people were forgiving. Really making kind of offering and sacrifice to God. It's kind of devotion to this guy that should. And there were lots of people just giving doves because it was easy and convenient thing to do. You know, people didn't have animals. I really raised animals. So you had to buy could be, yeah. Maybe may have been easier, cheaper, or whatever, and may not have always been pleasing to the Lord. Bruce. What did the laying of the hand on the head of the animal signify? Was that a transfer, or was it some sort of identification between the worshiper and the animal? Well, that's a big question in all of this. And I think it at least means that the worshiper is identifying himself with the animal. This is my animal. Maybe it's even more the idea, you know, I'm sort of uh, identifying my animal because the animal will die in my place. It'll sort of be my substitute. He's being offered up for me. Um, that's, a, that's a kind of a debated issue. But somebody got a thought on that? Anything else on chapter 1? Uh huh. That's true, and they used the laying on of lots of times for various things. Well, I don't know what to say about that. I mean, there was just certain animals that were allowed, and others weren't. Same. Uh, I was under the impression when I read verse two says. When any of one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering. Do you have to offer? Can you buy it? I think the idea is more you bring your animal. I, if you didn't own an animal, though, I, I don't know that there was anything prohibited about buying it. So, but I think the idea is more you bring one of your animals. So if you had some animals you could bring, you bring them. But don't just go out and buy something just to sacrifice. That's my impression. Somebody want to confirm or deny that? I think it was a lot of their wealth 
tenure that was, again, it wasn't put in the bank in the form of money. They either in jewelry or they had livestock. When you think about Abraham and Lot, I mean, they're, and Job, their wealth was basically by the livestock that they had, maybe land as well, but livestock. Good point. Yeah, they may not have had the money to buy an animal. Were doves and pigeons the only birds allowed offered? I don't recall. Were there other uh, uh, birds offered besides doves and pigeons? Not that I. Doves and pigeons may have been the only birds they owned. Though. Could be, Ben. I just a quick comment about the idea of laying on hands. First Timothy four calls us to not to lay hands upon anyone too hastily, and thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. Yeah. And you know, I don't necessarily think that's talking about the idea of passing the Holy Spirit on to them. The idea. Of you know, like transferring leadership, you know, giving your authority, you are blessing a person when you put your hands on you're linking yourself to them. So you can think about it maybe going through the other way. When he laid his hands upon this animal, who was sharing responsibility for his sins? Good point. Okay, other comments? In verse, uh, <coughs> in verse 13 and also verse 17, it says that an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. It also says in verse... Two and nine in the next chapter. Do you think that God actually, like, smell it? I mean, or is it more just like that the burnt offering is just pleasing to him, or like the? I mean, I think God uses human type of uh, expressions. You know, it smells good to him, but because he is pleased with it, not that God obviously wouldn't have a physical sensation about that. But all through the Bible, God has given human characteristics. We talk about the hands of God and the ears of God and all that. Well, he doesn't have any of those things literally. But it's just talking about, you know, God doing things or hearing things or seeing things. And, and so in this case, I think it's the, it pleases God. God is happy with it. And so it's like a pleasing aroma to him. Sort of an expression for our benefit. I think the pleasing aroma was supposed to contrast to how awful it actually smelled. Because, like, it's basically saying that what pleases God isn't the same thing as us. That's certainly yeah. true. We might not have been pleased by that aroma, but uh, God is pleased by very different things than we are. That's a good point. And uh, he's pleased when he sees us giving ourselves to the Lord and following his will. Good point. Other thoughts? Maybe this is another symbolism, but they, they throw away the stuff uh, in six, 16. Uh, they cast it on the east side of the altar. It's kind of away from God. God would be on the west, at least at the tabernacle, I guess. Um, he would be on the west side of the altar, and he's kind of throwing away the bad stuff away from God. Okay, good, good point. Other thoughts? Any ideas in why the crop was thrown away? The crop with its feathers. Uh, the skin of the animal was also, you know, disposed of. So I guess this is kind of an analogy to that. Okay. Okay. So why, why that? Anybody... But it kind of like represent like your sins, like throwing your sins from 
<laughs> what I've always seen it as is uh, another symbolism of purity, just throwing what was left over away from God, so there's still that sense of purity there. Okay. So you kind of the same idea behind washing the entrails in the legs? Maybe so, and they couldn't wash the, these things with a bird. I think maybe sometimes we're in the composition because God said so. <laughs> Certainly so. It's good, good comments, good questions, good things to think about. It's helpful for us to think through these things and, and visualize them and try to see them as well as we can. That's, I think, helpful to us. Other thoughts? I, just, I, I try to go back to the unclean animals in regards to that question about what they eat and, and to see if they listed in the clean animals, the dove and the you know, whale or something. There's no listing of that, at least that I found there in, in chapter 11, but there's all these other birds that were unclean that were listed. So I, I wish it would have been as simple as he listed, well, these are clean animals, but it's not, it's not really mentioned. No, he mostly with the birds tells us what not to eat, so I yeah. assume that these were clean since they're not prohibited. Because they were probably the predominant birds that are mentioned throughout the Bible, and they're not mentioned, so right. it must mean they are right. I think so. acceptable. Yes, yeah, I agree with you. By not being mentioned. Right. Important. Other comments or questions? All right, we're a little bit early, but I think this might be a good spot for our break since we've come to the end of this chapter. Kyle, you want to say anything before we break? Uh, don't break anything. Okay. So... <laughs>